Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She is the Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. This show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? This podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabewaki, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This land is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am so excited to introduce our guest today, who is brilliant and also a colleague and a wonderful friend, Dr. Laura Ferguson. She is the director at the Program of Global Health and Human Rights and assistant professor of preventive medicine at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. She is also an associate editor at the journal Sexual and Reproductive Health Matters, which is an amazing journal. Her research focuses on understanding and addressing health system and societal factors that affect the health and the uptake of health services, with particular attention to the evidence base of how attention to human rights can improve health outcomes. She has collaborated with the United Nations, the World Health Organization, She's lived uh, many different places, including in Sub-Saharan Africa, and her work focuses primarily on HIV, sexual and reproductive health, and child health. Welcome, Laura. Thank you, Carmen. It's very exciting to be here. Thank you for inviting me. This took a while to organize, so I'm very grateful. So usually, if I've met somebody, which I've met you many times, I talk about our origin story. I think it was... Was it at the Broche Foundation in Geneva? I think that's right, yeah. yeah. And... 2018, maybe? Yeah, and it's so beautiful, listeners. Well, I was able to spend a month there last year before uh, everybody was asked to leave because of COVID. And it's on Lake Geneva. It's beautiful. It's in this kind of big old castle kind of building. And we had some meetings there, right? For like a week or something. I can't remember. I think it was like a week. We were there for a few days. It's just like the perfect place to like do big thinking because it is so stunning and you can kind of wander around the grounds by the lake and feel like we did a lot of that and really just trying to bounce around new ideas. It was fun. Yeah, it was really fun. And then we ended up um, meeting up, I think, a second time there. And there was another meeting somewhere else, and then also in Chicago. So I feel like the next place needs to be visiting you in California. You're very welcome here anytime. (laughs) So I just introduced you to the listeners. And so if I'm in an elevator with you going up a few floors, and someone says, hey, Laura, what kind of work do you do? How do you describe that? I think I'd just say that I'm I'm really interested in how large scale forces, so things like laws, policies, systems, societies, 
how does how do all of those things affect people's risk of ill health their access to health services and then ultimately their health their their quality of life their well-being i don't really work in a biomedical field i i work around kind of drugs and interventions that we know work in a lab situation or in a trial situation and see well what does it take to make that work in the real world and really have an impact on people's lives that's amazing i love that and I love that about your work is that you really look at these these influences of laws and policies. I want to show up, you know I want to show up to where you live right now. It's by LA, right? Is that where you are? I'm in LA, yeah. yeah. Ah, yeah. I've never really hung out in LA. I really want to though. So I'm going to show up to LA right now in my time machine that has space for physical distancing and say, take me back in your life to the time and place where you said, I want to look at laws and policies that influence health. And the, the time machine can have multiple stopovers. It can be across time and space. So where do we go? Wow, I love that you have such a fancy time machine. I'm totally in. <laughs> I've, been, I've been refining it oh. over the past year. Technical <laughs> updates. I love it. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we'll do a few stops. I think, so I actually grew up in a small town in Portugal, um, and I was really aware that just from quite a young age of inequalities, there was a lot of social inequality around. And I, I didn't, I just remember being confused by it, like not quite getting why people lived in such different conditions. And so I think that was kind of a seed that was planted early. Then fast forward to graduating college, I still was trying to figure out what to do with my life, but I still had that idea that I wanted it to be something about international development, inequalities, that kind of thing. And there had just been an a hurricane in Central America. I'd seen a call for volunteers in Honduras. Wow. And they were looking for bilingual people. So I was like, great, I could do that. So I hopped on a plane to Honduras with like literally no money in my bank and just a return plane ticket. Um, and I got there. I remember so clearly I was working, volunteering for this nonprofit. And they're like, hey, what's your skill set? What do you bring? And I'm like, well, I speak Spanish. And they're like, it's Honduras. Everybody speaks Spanish. And I was like, oh. <laughs> You're like, I'm not that special. And like, yeah, I was like, well, I, you know, I'd studied literature and I couldn't quite figure out how to spin that to him as a valuable skill. <laughs> and I could see kind of despair across his face. And he said, well, look, will you work on sexual reproductive health? And I was like, yes, absolutely. Of course I will. So that kind of moved me totally by chance into the area of sexual and reproductive health. And I loved it. And so I was there for a few months until I ran out of money and I went back to London. And then I ended up working for a Kenyan nonprofit. I was based in, in the UK, but working in a lot of different countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And it was the time before treatment was available there. And so HIV was just everywhere and people were dying mm. in a way that was, I mean, it was just so visible, so tangible that you, I didn't feel I could work there and not work on HIV. So that kind of led me into HIV. It also led me into acknowledging that I knew nothing about public health. I had no training and that perhaps I should study some more. And so I went to do that. And that was where I really started learning about rights and laws and policies. And, and then somehow stumbled into a career in academia, which also hadn't been the plan at all. So it was, it was very much a stepwise serendipitous process. <laughs> But it, it worked out really well in the end. Okay, so I'm going to try to follow this in my time machine. So we start off in Portugal in a small town. And then we go, where did you go to college? In England. In whereabouts in England? Cambridge. So Cambridge. So we're going from a small town in Portugal to Cambridge to Honduras. 
Mm-hmm. And then we go to Kenya. Yep. And then we go to your the next school that that was in the was that in the U.S. Yeah, Boston. Yeah. <laughs> so the time machine is quite it's quite interesting. Also, I didn't know that we had this in common. Was I started working in HIV in '94, and that was before there was good medication available as a volunteer. Nice. So I had a thought I was going to go into. I wanted to be a lawyer. Like I thought I was going to go into criminal law. And then I started volunteering at a, a soup kitchen and then also volunteering at a, an HIV floor. And then I just said, oh, I need to go into like more like social work type things. But it's super interesting. Right? It is super. I think for folks that have started doing HIV work before there was good medication and now there's still not access that is as good as it could be in many places. I think that was such a powerful time to be working when you really could see that without medication, you know, there really were a lot of people who are very, very ill. But now that we have the medication, right? Like there's often barriers, like social structural barriers to to getting it. So, but, but that's exactly it. You know, we've got antiretroviral therapy. It's this phenomenal drug. You know, it's really good for treatment and for prevention. And yet we know how many people are out there who could benefit from using it, who aren't using it. And so I think that's the piece that interests me is there's the why not Mm. of that. Like, is it something that's going on at the legal, at the level of law? So are there legal barriers? Is it about policy? Is it about the health system simply not reaching? Or is it some of these societal and cultural factors that shape people's behaviors and attitudes? And and I think really trying to tease that apart is is kind of what what I think is really exciting about this, because unless we can do that, Mm. we're never going to get to universal access. We're never going to get these drugs to everybody who needs them. So we can have the best drugs and, and equipment in the world. But unless we can deal with these social, social, cultural, legal, systemic barriers, we, we still we can't have the impact that we should be having with them. I totally agree with you. I want you to tell the listeners, so what does stigma have to do with that? All these barriers and the that prevent universal access. What Tina Turner said, what's love got to do with it? So what does stigma have to do with it? That should be a great article for a paper. We should write it together. <laughs> oh my gosh, we should. There's actually this really good, what do you call it? Like, is it like a meme? It's not even a meme. It's, I, I actually put put it on some of my conference presentations or my talks. It, it's a picture of like, I think of Tina Turner and it says like, what's love got to do with it? You know, we, we should we should name this podcast, what stigma got there to do go. with it? And then make an article, I like that. So how would you say stigma shows up in, you know, when we're thinking about all these barriers you mentioned? I mean, stigma shows up at all of those different levels. And, and I think that that's, that's why it's so important in this. And I wanna say, like, we can keep talking about HIV, it's an area that we both do a lot of work in, but I, I want to be clear, this isn't just about HIV. Like, we'll find the same issues, whether we're talking about sexual reproductive health, you know, adolescent pregnancy, uh, abortion, whether we're talking about non-communicable diseases, you know, these issues of stigma are very, very pervasive. And they go from the individual level all the way up through laws and policies. So I do think... When you think about, there's a fear in a lot of people of stigma and of being discriminated against that 
makes people reticent to seek HIV-related care. People don't want to be seen walking into an HIV clinic lest their neighbors think, oh my goodness, they have HIV. Or even, you know, having HIV medications in your bathroom, like who's going to see them there and, you know, who who might find out? So I think there's there's the kind of the personal level, and I think there's also a judgment for a lot of people around HIV and what, why did this happen to me and what did I do? And, and I think there's still a real kind of self-blame um in a lot of ways that can can also play out negatively. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, at the societal level, that stigma does still exist. And whether it's HIV-related stigma or stigma against some of the groups who are most affected by HIV, whether that's sex workers, transgender people, men who have sex with men, people who use drugs. Mm-hmm. And then you think about people who are like part of multiple of those groups. And you think of the layers of stigma that comes along with that. You know, all of that has to be teased apart and understood. And then I'm going to, then we have, you know, what happens within a health facility itself. Like, what are the attitudes of the people who work in the facility? Um, do they give a patient-friendly quality of care? Do they have judgments about people living with HIV or sex workers or men who have sex with men? Right. So there's definitely the, that kind of interpersonal relationship but within within the institutional context and then there's the laws and policies and again you know this I do a lot on this and and it's I find it fascinating because there are some laws for example that create barriers to people accessing services so whether those are laws that criminalize sex between men or that criminalize sex work those we know we have very good evidence dissuade people from from attending uh, services mm. But then there are also some really good laws. So law can be used as a positive in this, in terms of tackling discrimination. And I want to be clear here, this is about discrimination. This is why stigma and discrimination to me are distinct, but so important to look at them together, is that there's a a legal grounding and a human rights grounding for addressing discrimination. And I think that that adds an extra layer of strength Mm. to, to a response when we can ground something in law and really can try and try and use those avenues as an extra entry point for addressing stigma and and discrimination. And then we have to look at how laws are implemented, right? We could have really good laws, but if they're misinterpreted or misimplemented by the police or misinterpreted by judges, um, you know, there's a real role to be played by some of those folks as well in terms of how how people experience stigma. And that's what this is always going to come back to. It's that Mm. stigma is something that people experience. Discrimination is something that people experience. And for as long as that's happening and from all of these different angles, right, it's something that's really hard for for an individual to stand up to, which is, I think, why why we need to be paying more attention to, like, what can we do structurally to, to try and mitigate against some of this? Those are good examples. So what is some of your work that you're excited about that you're doing? And also, can you give any examples, obviously anonymized, of of how people kind of bump into laws in, in ways that, that maybe increase their likelihood of stigma or, and then also like, I like the um, also your description that the laws can also be good if they're protecting rights. So I know I asked you like three three things at once, which you're like never supposed to do. So now just tell us some of your projects, and if there's any you know examples that come to mind of 
of, of how, because I know you've done so much work on the law, how, how the law sort of shows up in relationship to stigma in, in any of your current projects or past projects? Yeah, I mean, a, a, a massive question or a massive three questions. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> you know, I've been doing quite a lot of evaluation work of other people's work to improve legal environments. So really trying to look across different country settings, like what are people doing and what impact is that having? Mm. And a lot of this has been in sub-Saharan Africa, but I've been trying to tease apart, like what are some of the success factors if you're trying to improve legal and policy environment around HIV? And some of that work is so exciting. And and it's, what I love about it is the complexity of it but that people embrace that. I know that particularly funders love those like easy fixes where you can count something and say like, I saved this many lives or gave this many people pills, right? If you're working with laws and policies, mm. nothing's linear, right? You take a couple of steps forward yeah. and you can go many steps back, then, right? <laughs> so it's a complicated process and you can come at it from so many different angles. And some of the best work that I've seen, UNDP has been doing a lot of that's the United Nations Development Program, where they've really been looking at both the folks who are responsible for designing and implementing and upholding the law, as well as the people who are affected by the law, right? So normal citizens, you, me, anybody who's at risk of HIV or who has HIV. And so they've been trying to build people's understanding of the law around these areas and what's damaging and what's Mm -hmm. really helpful. And one of the wonderful things that they've done is they've brought people together across those groups. So they bring together like judges from across the African region with groups of people living with HIV and men who have sex with men and people who use drugs and sex workers. Oh, cool. And and the judges get to hear, this is the impact that the law has on my life as a transgender woman. Or this is, you know, so it, it it's a way of really personalizing the issues. Wow, so, that's amazing. And they do the same with the police and they do with health workers. Yeah. And so in a way, all of those authorities stop seeing these marginalized groups just as people of whose behavior they disapprove, but they actually see people and they understand the impact of law. And conversely, all of those, the, the regular people don't see the police now as a monolith of like everybody there is bad and is going to beat me up for no reason and detain me and extort me and all of those things that we know happens. But like there are some good people there. So how can we make these connections on both sides? Mm. And I think there's something about, you know, trying to bridge those what are often huge divides um, that can be really successful. You know, one great example was in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and they did one of these big meetings and there were all sorts of different types of people there, um, including members of parliament, so the lawmakers um, and people from the Ministry of Health. Um, and one of the community constituencies was men who had sex with men. And they were all nervous, you know, that many of them had never spoken in a forum like this. There was lots of preparation of how they could do it. And, and they ended up getting lubricant put on the essential medicines list of the country. Oh, that's it, great. It previously hadn't been available. And for them, they were like able to articulate to policymakers why this made a difference to their lives and, and policymakers understood. And so you see, I mean, changes like that happening all over the place that I think are really exciting. That is so great. I, I remember in many contexts, like I've been working in and like Eswatini and Jamaica as examples 
where same-sex practices are criminalized, mm -hmm. um, accessing lubricant was seen as being associated with being gay. And so people didn't have access to that and also condoms sometimes. So it's like actually a big barrier. So being able to to talk about sex because I'm always like we need more sex positive conversations but the other thing you made me think of when you were saying that example is something that it comes up so much on this podcast and also in this this book I was working on that's coming out soon um is about the importance of uh people in positions of power and you know also I mean we all have a different access to power but people who have more access to power, uh, seeing this, the shared humanity with people with less access to power. And so, you know, once you see the shared humanity and you see, you know, it's just, it's just so funny. Like in this book, there's like five chapters, all different research projects. And I asked, a, a, and I did an interview with community partners. They're including Indigenous colleague in, in the Arctic, uh, LGBTQ colleagues in Eswatini, colleagues working in, I worked with in Haiti, and a, a colleague who's a, who actually was on a podcast, Yasmin Prasad, a, a trans woman of color activist. I asked them all, what do you want researchers to know working with the uh, communities? They all said the same thing, which is what you just said, that these are people. They have the same hopes and goals and fears. They love, they have friends. Like they are like you, they, we are the same. We, you know, we, we all hope to be happy and we all want love and acceptance. Like there's a shared humanity that I think gets lost that we have to like kind of re reconnect people with the, the shared humanity with others, which sounds like what they did with the judges who have so much power, right? And groups who are criminalized who have so much less access to power. Absolutely. But, you know, Carmen, that comes back to why we're talking about stigma and discrimination, because, you know, that is the kind of the deliberate othering, the deliberate separation from people, groups of people based on a characteristic of behavior, whatever it is. And it, it's exactly that loss of common humanity. And it's kind of a rejection of that. And I think that that's why it feels so uncomfortable. It's, you know, I think it's something that uh, it feels really important to be able to bring people back into that understanding of the commonalities of being human and that that we all are greater than the characteristics that are visible or that people want to assign to us yeah it's really ah yeah i've been um i'm sure you've done this a million times to like an expert witness on folks because i did a lot of re research with colleagues in jamaica to make aid support for life and other partners there seeking asylum and then having to kind of present all the evidence that people don't have access to justice you know and it's so it's so still like amazing and disappointing and disheartening that there's still so many countries that criminalize sex work that criminalize same-sex practices what do you think we need to do to change those laws another another small question there <laughs> I know you can. I know you can handle tough questions. <laughs> no, I mean it's a great question, and I think you know we 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 just got to keep hammering away at it. I'd say it's a it's a long term process, and it's funny that you know even working a lot with public health professionals who work on HIV and sexual reproductive health, abortion, like some of those sort of taboo stigmatized issues, mm. and talking to them about laws and policies 
people are very comfortable in the policy space because it's seen as technical, Hmm. but everybody shies away from the legal space because it's seen as political. Right. And so there's, it's almost like there's a whole different mindset about how to deal with that and think about that. But the problem is it's, it's the legal framework within which everything else sits. Right. Mm -hmm. So if the laws are problematic, then, you know, you, you can't fix that with a policy. You can't fix that with training of health workers. You know, you really need to get the, the macro structure right. And I think that a couple of things. First of all, we need to start questioning what counts as evidence in different mm-hmm. spaces. So when you say evidence of lack of access to justice, like how many people do we want to see killed in the process before you think that that's enough? Can we put more weight on individual testimony and like really hearing people's stories in a real way, for example, um, and, and how to get people to think in different contexts about what what evidence counts, if you like, um, and that maybe it not be purely numbers, but that there'd be stories behind that as well, that I think are really important. And I, I think, honestly, it, it takes a bit of work from everyone. Mm-hmm. Now, there are interesting questions about, you know, if you change the law, does society then change or does society have to change in order for the law to change? And and there really, you know, I don't think there's a simple answer to that. But I do think that if you want to change the law, it's really important to be working with the government because they ultimately make laws, right? But also with the public and not just the civil society folks who usually work on these issues and are passionate about them, but really with public opinion and, and trying to, to take away some of the political risk for, for government officials who are willing to be progressive and stand out and push change, but they, you know, their job is dependent on being reelected. So they don't want to rock the boat too much. So I think that there's a real balance there where you need to involve all those, all those people. And in fact, we saw it in the two recent cases on decriminalization of sex between men, one in Botswana and one in Kenya. And the Botswana case was successful and the Kenyan one wasn't. Both are obviously under appeal now, which is a whole different story. But in Botswana, they did so much work with the media. They did so much work with civil society, with really trying to bring out these narratives of humanity and and try and um, ensure that it wasn't seen as a change that was coming simply from a very tiny subset of the population, but that this was something that, you know, there was some cultural awareness acceptance being fostered outside just the idea of legal change. I totally agree with you. I will never forget, I think it was like 2014, and I was doing a a focus group with gay, bisexual, and other sexually diverse young men in Jamaica. And I asked them about decriminalization or like, you know, removing the laws, changing the laws. And they said, don't do that. We will have such negative backlash. They're like, you need to go and change communities' hearts and minds first. And I also did my PhD research in India when it was criminalized, same-sex practice, and then it was like decriminalized, and then it was like recriminalized, and it was decriminalized. I think because we didn't take into account the need to really win over the hearts and minds of, of the quote, general public of communities and not just the civil society or the, you know, some people. It, it actually has to be this social transformation, which takes money and media and like, and people aren't necessarily in, investing in changing entire social norms. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
No, absolutely. It's it's a huge prospect. But I think, I mean, you're absolutely right in terms of the the safety issues and that, you know, that's got to be the driver of any work is it has to be what the community wants and it, it can't endanger the community. And in a sense, that's where human rights comes in as a really useful tool because human rights require participation in anything like this. So the work should be community-led and community-driven um, so that, yes, we can use these foundational principles of non-discrimination as well. You know, this is the reason why we're doing this, but that it really must must come from the community and, and they should feel that th- this is not just their need, but this is what they want and they're the ones at the center of, of trying to make it happen. I also appreciate what you said earlier about uh, what is evidence, who's voice counts, what kind of information is valued. Uh, We had an earlier podcast this year with Dr. Judy Auerbach, and she talked about stigma towards social sciences versus biomedical and how certain types of information are not seen as legitimate as other types. So I, you know, it's it's interesting because I'm always asked, you know, when we prepare these expert witness testimonials to quantify you know and i can put in the qualitative work which is much more rich just because the number you know the quantitative sample size isn't that big uh but they people are always wanting to kind of quantify it, which is often hard when people are deliberately choosing not to participate in research because they don't want negative repercussions from the law. So people are existing and maybe their resistance is not to participate in your study, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, I mean, honestly, there's some human experience that you can't distill to a number, right? So the numbers are never going to like tell the whole story, but then who gets to decide what quantitative data are collected by whom, for what purpose, in what circumstances, like all of those things are really important for the the people on whom data is being collected, right? And surely, again, those needs have to be determined by the community themselves. The data should be collected by the community themselves. Like there are different ways of, of thinking about it. And, you know, one of the, another project that I'm working on right now, which is, it's more about sexual reproductive health and rights is about kind of hierarchies of knowledge and mm. how to make sure that it's really about like ensuring a rights-based process to sexual and reproductive health research and what does that mean and how do you like tangibly do that? And so thinking about how do you approach participation even, recognizing that you or I, however unthreatening we, we might think we appear, there's an immediate power dynamic with anybody who we're working with in other countries and other communities. Um, and so how to kind of, look beyond that, dismantle hierarchies of power, dismantle hierarchies of knowledge, and really start trying to think about valuing community-based knowledge and practice. And how how do you package that in a way that can then feed into the kind of processes that you're talking about? It's very, I mean, it's it's very exciting. It's immensely challenging, but it, it's... Um, do, you, do you have any answers for us? Or is it... To continue. It's to be to, we'll do that on the next one, <laughs> next time round, part two. <laughs> uh, so, Laura, I'm wondering before we get to the wild cards, I'm wondering if there's anything, if someone's listening to this podcast, walking their dog, and I always use that example because I actually listen to podcasts while I'm walking my dog. Um, so, listeners, you can give me other examples of when you're listening to this podcast, and I will use those in future podcasts. But for now, I'm going to use my own experience of podcasts, walking my dog. 
what can they do? Like, what do you want listeners who are listening to this and being like, okay, what's my role in this? How can I be part of um, a solution? Great question. I mean, everybody can be part of a solution. And I think that can happen in different ways. I think, you know, on the, just on a day-to-day basis, like I find it really helpful just to check myself sometimes, right? We all have assumptions about people, Mm -hmm. right? And, and we don't notice Mm -hmm. them. We don't stop, stop and check. And so I think that trying to be self-aware about if we treat people differently and why is a useful exercise in self-reflection. You know, obviously there's, there's work you can do within institutions that you're involved with in terms of is the policy space right to protect from stigma and discrimination um, and kind of what's happening around that. I honestly think one of the most important things people can do is vote. I just said, you know, laws, are, uh, they're political. They're made by politicians. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're not made by public health technocrats. And so we need to make sure that we're politically active at whatever level that means, like from the community right through to our national elections. And I think that that's, that's really a space where, you know, whether it's time, whether it's money, depending on what your what's available to you and what your interests are, there's, there's huge scope there to, to really engage in real discussion about effective change. I love that you gave such really practical tips because, you know, I've been obviously watching the U.S. and the abortion laws and it with a lot of concern and, mm-hmm. you know, thinking, wow. And, and I guess, you know, the last election was a really big deal and so many people showed up. But even where I'm living, we have a very conservative government for our province and just thinking like, gosh, how do we how do we get more people out voting? How do we change change situations, you know, where, where we're living too, right? So, you know. Absolutely. And, but I think also to recognize that even where there's a conservative government, there may be more cr- progressive people within it. Mm. And I, so I, I think that there's uh, a tendency to see governments as monolithic and in many ways that they are, but there, I think there are, there are cracks in that. There are always entry points of people who are more receptive to hearing about issues such as the ones we've been talking about. And, you know, they may, they may only be able to do small things, but every, every little bit helps. And I, yeah, thank you so much for that. And I also appreciate what you said about our own biases and, you know, I think imagining the experiences that we don't have and being aware of that, you know, like from a small town, people might, I'm from a small town, you know, people would have, have assumptions about people in rural areas. And some of them might be true and some of them might not be true. You know what I mean? And also I was listening to, I was listening to a podcast the other day. Were you walking your dog? I was walking my dog and it was with the, somebody in charge of Instagram or something who had said that he used to be a waiter and, and how he wishes everybody had experience in the service industry. I waitressed for seven years on and off, paid my way through school, traveling. I've also done very short stints as a housekeeper. I realize I'm really terrible at making pets. <laughs> like I was just like not good enough. I do not have the ability to like make the bed to like the extreme standard. I'm like not a type A person. It's but the corners, right? It's, I just like I can't. <laughs> 
can't do it. You know, waitressing, I'm really good at it. I can like make conversation, you know, like I have a pretty good memory or I used to, and you know, I could balance plates. I could, I can throw pizzas in the air and things like that. But I, I always feel like that has given me such respect for anybody who's ever serving me coffee, who's serving me food and, you know, who's cleaning the room, like who is around you that is maybe doing a job that isn't as valued as it could be. And then how can we acknowledge the value in everybody that is like everybody that is literally in this world has a value, not even if they're working or not, but especially when they're working in positions that might not be valued, right? Like just even those small ways of rethinking dignity and value as being inherent in, in people, regardless of, of the social hierarchy and being aware of the social hierarchy too, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So I would say if you haven't waitressed, try it out. And then you'll I find out do. I how it's hard really it is. For everybody. It's, it's a very tough job. I did that. <laughs> I also attended bar for a while. Did I, you? Yeah, I, I did secretarial <laughs> work. I, I mean, I did all sorts of stuff. And I think it, like you say, it just widens your perspective in, in a way that uh, I think is incredibly useful in, in life. Amazing. I, this is why I love you so much. Okay, we're going to go, uh, we're going to go to the wild cards. Are you ready for the wild cards? Let's do it. So they're going to get to know the real Laura. Okay. All right. All right. Wild card one. What are you watching on Netflix slash Hulu slash Crave slash whatever it is you watch? Um. Well, I'm kind of mixing it up a little bit at the moment. So I'm very much into a series called Spiral. Do you know that? No. It's a French detective series. It's set in Paris. It's very gritty and a little bit hardcore sometimes. Oh. But I love it. The characters are great. So I'm totally into that. But it is difficult sometimes. So I mix it up with Call My Agent. I haven't heard of that either. What is that? Well, it's also French. I don't know why I'm in such a French space. Do you at the speak moment. French? I do, yeah. Okay, so are you watching them in French? Yeah. Wow. It's a great way to keep language alive. I, I mm-hmm. watch all sorts of random TV. But Call My Agent is this, like, ridiculous comedy about, like, TV movie agents in this agency in Paris. And it's, everything's ludicrous. And it's just, like, the perfect thing to, like, relax the brain in front of. Okay, that's amazing. Can you and I go on a trip to Paris? Because, A, I like Paris, but I've never been there for fun. Mm-hmm. B... I only went to Paris for conferences alone and it feels like a place where it's good to have another person because everyone's like strolling and eating outside with their friends and things and see, I'm trying to relearn French and I'm having a really hard time with Duolingo moving <laughs> beyond 15% literacy. I'm like, I'm just so like needing to go somewhere and immerse myself. You know? Immersion in Paris <laughs> is definitely the way to do it. And if I can facilitate that in any way, I am absolutely there with you. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> okay. Question number two, wild card. If you could go, I think I know what you're going to say, but I could be wrong. If you could go anywhere in the world you want right now for dinner with anybody, where would you go and who would you take? Oh, wow. I have no idea what I'm going to say. Um <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what I thought you were going to say then. <laughs> I mean, anyone in the world, there's like, I don't know, literary greats, master painters, like all the social justice pioneers, like anyway. I'd want all of them. It's going to be a big party. Okay. Uh, um, you got a party. No, I mean, I think, I, you know, I think you're probably in a similar situation. Like I haven't traveled in 15 months, which is not our usual 
lifestyle. And while I love all my people in LA, I have people all over the place and, and I miss them. And so I'd really like to bring together my family and friends who all live elsewhere, who I haven't seen in such a long time. And we're definitely going to be somewhere warm, probably on a beach with crystal clear water. And we will just. Any place come to mind? It's your favorite beach, vacay. I mean, I have to say the Seychelles has some pretty lovely beaches. What? That's on my bucket list. I I did some research there. Oh, come on. Why am I not working with you on that research? (laughs) I'm I'm trying to make it ongoing. I haven't succeeded yet. uh, Let me know if I can contribute um, it anyway. I'll carry your bags, you know. (laughs) Take notes. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a wonderful place. Nice. Um, okay. So. The Seychelles, well, you know, let me know when that happens. I I'll certainly will. I'll book a room somewhere nearby. Okay. The last question on the podcast for you is, is there any words of wisdom or advice or quotes that you found helpful along this journey of life that you want to share with the listener? I mean, lots of advice. I'm not very good at quotes just because I don't have that good of a memory. You know, I think the the piece of advice that I have found most useful is that it's not just that it's okay not to conform, but it's actually probably a good thing. Mm. And that, you know, the world is changing all the time, politically, structurally, in terms of how we, like intellectually, how we think about stuff. And so it doesn't mean that just because something's always been done one way, that it should continue to be done that way. And, you know, we're all changing all the time as well. So not just because I did something somehow 10 years ago, doesn't mean it's the right thing or the right way for me to do it now. And so I think that, you know, again, it's about challenging assumptions and patterns in one's own immediate life, but also in, in the bigger world and trying to break some of those molds. And I remember really early on in my career being told, that I was too interdisciplinary and that I had to focus on, could I just sit in the box of being an epidemiologist or a social scientist or a human rights person? And I was like, I I don't, it just makes no sense to me to compartmentalize like that. And, you know, obviously it's it's a trade-off and some people do want to sit squarely in those boxes and that's great. Um, But I think just recognizing there's no single pathway that's right but that going through open doors is always a good thing to do, like taking advantage of any opportunity. They're not all going to work out, but it doesn't matter, right? You just like find another one and try that. Maybe, maybe that's better. Everyone's a learning opportunity. And I think so forging your own path, I think is, is really important and sort of feeling that I was able to do that based on that advice a long time ago is something that I I'd say that to my students all the time. You know, they will, come in on a pre-med pathway and think they're going to be doctors and they thought that since they were 10 years old and suddenly they discover global health and like, wow, what do I do? Like, do whatever you want, you know, go out and experiment and find out what's out there. And I think that's, you know, it can be a little terrifying and overwhelming, but it can also be really liberating. I love that you said that. I, I had a few convers- like mentorship conversations last summer with some people I, I respect. Some of them have been on this podcast and I was like, I feel like changing my research program a bit. And is that, do we do that? Like, do we just change what we do? And, you know, and they're all women. I, I really want to have conversations with. And they were all like, 
live your life, be unleashed, follow your nose, like do what you're passionate about. And then that's what you're going to be successful at. And like, I love what you said, like everything is changing around you. You know, you can also, you are part of the world too, which means you can inherently be always changing, right? Like, I love that. I hope so. I mean, I think that's what makes it really exciting. And I think the idea of like developing your research program, it just shows me like how much you're growing intellectually and how much your interests are changing as the world around you is changing as you're changing. And that it just, I mean, it seems like absolutely the perfect thing to be doing. You're so awesome. I can't wait to see you. Thank you. I know you're so busy and thank you so much for coming. It's such a pleasure, Karma. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to see you. It's so great. So listeners, I will have a link to Laura's bio and work and you can follow her on you're on Twitter, right? I am on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> follow her on Twitter. And uh, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us again for more conversations with stigma leaders from around the globe. If you want to listen, what I have to tell you. Mm-hmm.